Well, before we get started, I, I need to draw your attention to something in the bulletin. There's a slight mistake. The, the title of the sermon is actually Hear, Believe, and Live Forever, Not Live Together. It would be interesting to know what that other sermon would have been, but perhaps on, perhaps on another occasion. All right. Uh, could I ask you to do something, please? Um, would you make it a habit... Uh, to br- keep your Bibles open and follow along verse by verse during the sermon. Bring your own Bibles to church and keep them open during the sermon to follow along verse by verse. I'm asking as your pastor for you to do that. Seeing the words in your own Bible helps you listen and comprehend and worship during preaching. You worship when you listen rightly with your mind and heart and when you enjoy what you hear. Good preaching trains you to study the Bible, to study the Bible, to scrutinize the Word of God and test the sermon against the Word of God. It's all part of worship. It's how you can actively participate in worship. The noble Bereans did this. They received the word with all eagerness, as the scripture tells us, and they examined the scriptures to see if what they were being taught actually coincided with what God had had written in his word. So everyone is a theologian. You all are theologians, sitting under the authority of God's word, interpreting and thinking about God's word. Preaching God's word engages the mind and affection, so be sure to devote yourself to listening, to thinking, to scrutinizing, and to applying what you hear. Now, we have seen Jesus do incredible things in the Gospel of John. Last week, he healed an invalid of 38 years, which substantiated his uh, divine authority and power and compassion, as well as his authority over legalism and even his authority over the Sabbath. We heard that the Father and Son work together as a team, and beyond the Sabbath issue, verse 18 said Jesus made himself equal with God, which caused tremendous hostility with the religious elitists who then sought to kill him. From verse 19 on, Jesus continued talking with those hostile Jews and explained fascinating things about his unity and equality with the Father. So as we study the the passage together, I'd like you to watch for the unity and equality of the Father and the Son. The unity and equality of the Father and the Son. Jesus humbly relies on and watches his Father closely. Jesus said, truly, truly, and I recognize that in the NIV it doesn't have truly, truly, but truly, truly is a phrase that is used at least 25 times in John. The phrase accentuates what follows. That double, it is true, it is true, is is like listen up to what's coming. Jesus said, verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Jesus never acts independently from his dad. They're too close for that. Jesus never individualistically fights his dad for independence. Just give me some space, dad. That's not his heart. Instead, he humbly relies on his father. The father and son are divinely devoted to one another. Jesus reveres his father. 
And whatever he sees the father doing, that's what he does. Jesus embodies honor your father and mother. Later in John 5.30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. Now, Jesus is, is neither incompetent nor enslaved. Instead, he acts beautifully in unity with his father. We see this in John 8, 28, where Jesus said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. Later, he said in John 14, 30, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. The father dwells in Jesus and works his will through his son, and they enjoy divine teamwork. But what about John 10, 18, where Jesus talks about his own authority? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, he says. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge or decree I have received from my Father. So Jesus had the authority to lay his life down for sinners on the cross and the authority to take up his life again. But notice, he received the decree from his father, from his dad. Jesus endured the pain and scorn of the cross because his dad told him to. Do you know what Jesus said of his father in John 8, 29? And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is all about making his father proud. That's his main objective in life. And I believe that every son admires his father, but they obscurely reflect the admiration Jesus has for his father. In the heart Grown men are still those little boys looking up to their dads and wanting to be like them, longing for their dad to be proud of them. They're still the little boys who put on their dad's oversized shoes so that they can be just like him, except it's not shoes anymore. It's money and power and success or maybe godly leadership. And I think this is even true of men who hate their dads. Their emotions are so strong because of the deep wound from the unfulfilled dream of their father's reciprocated love and relationship. Jail cells are filled with men wounded by their fathers. This is why so many sons follow in the footsteps of their dads because deep down they revere them and they want to please them even if they hate them. In a distorted and broken way, messy, it reflects Jesus. God is the perfect father. Jesus is the perfect son. And with much humility, Jesus relies on his father, watches what he does, and divinely emulates him. Verse 19, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. The father does what he sees, I'm sorry, the son does what he sees the father do. Now, what is God like? Do you ever wonder that? What, what is God like? You have to look to the Son to know. Look to the Son and He will show you what the Father is like. 
And this is what love is about. The Father adores the Son and reveals His will to Him. The Father adores the Son. He loves the Son so much that He is willing to reveal His entire purpose and will to Him. The little word for connects verse 20 to the words right before. So we ask, why does the Son do what the Father does? For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Jesus has a special in with God. A special in. He knows what's up because God adores Him and therefore shows Him every glorious thing that He does. So if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what He's planning, if you want to know what God is all about, then you need to know the Son. Know Jesus, know God. I want my children, very precious to me, I want them to see and know and understand my heart and life in a very special way, and that's a unique gift that I give to only them. They see and experience God's glorious grace at work in my brokenness and my imperfection and how God's sovereign will works out for my good and and ultimately their good. I am their father and I share myself with them. Dads, moms, you are the only ones that can give that glorious gift to your children, to love them by unfolding how all of your life is aimed at following God's sovereign will and purpose for your life. Love your children by showing them the great purpose of the universe and how you're working unto that end the glory of Almighty God. God's highest aim is the glory of God. And the Father shows that wonderful aim and plan and purpose to His Son. Jesus continued with the Jews, and greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. He just healed an invalid of of a bunch of years, long time. What could God show His Son that is greater than healing an invalid man? How about raising people from the dead? That is much greater. The greater works may include Christ's honorable judgment of all men and his saving work through the gospel, but for certain, the Father shows the Son his power in resurrection. His resurrection power to bring the dead to life. All because he adores his Son and he wants to show him that. God powerfully and freely makes people alive. Look at verse 21. For, that connects it to verse 20, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. You see their unity? Uh, Three observations. Observation number one, God raises the spiritually dead to life. God raises the spiritually dead to life. The Father can say more than, I see dead people. You get that? See that reference? I see dead people. He can say more than that. He can say, I give dead people life. Observation number two. Jesus gives life just like his dad. The same life-giving power in the Father is also in the Son. Jesus gives life. Jesus does as his Father does. He brings life from death. Observation number three. Jesus chooses to whom he will give life. 
Jesus is sovereign over raising the dead. Verse 21 says, the Son gives life to whom He will. He desires. He purposes. Who receives life? Everyone that Jesus chooses. Giving life is His sovereign choice. And these three observations square with Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And here comes the, uh, God's sovereignty. By grace you have been saved. That's sovereign grace. God gives life to dead people now and at the final resurrection. So when we talk about the resurrection, how does all that resurrection stuff work out? It's kind of a mysterious time. It's in the future. And a lot of questions on that. Well, God appointed Jesus judge so he would share in his glory. It begins with Jesus as judge so that he gets the glory that God gets. We need to understand judgment. So many world religions and cults miss this truth. According to verse 22, God has given all divine judgment to his son. Every person will face Jesus in the last day and will be judged by the perfect king. Now, you may think, but I thought God judges. And that's right. Psalm 50, verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. But verse 22 says, the Father judges no one. So who judges? You see that tension? It says he didn't, but it says he does. And it... What have we covered already? The Son does nothing of his own accord, only what he sees his Father doing. And this is not like Friday in the courtroom. All right, time is fleeting and the father is eager uh, to, to head out for a round of golf and so he leaves all the work to the son. You take care of it, I'm hitting the celestial golf links. No, that's not what's happening here. The father and son work together but the father assigns judgment to the son showing the relationship of trust between the father and the son and how when the son acts, he acts with the authority of the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so we will. Why does the Father give that kind of divine authority to His Son? Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. God gave Jesus authority to judge so that Jesus would receive the same honor, the same glory, the same admiration and esteem that he receives. William Hendrickson wrote, The Father always works through the Son in order that these two persons who are equal in essence and in works may also be equal in honor. The Father and Son share the spotlight. Now, our culture somewhat honors God, somewhat. Just look at our currency, right? It's right there. In God we trust. But Jesus Christ is an entirely different matter. God is largely an amorphous, nebulous term. It, it has long become diluted and vague in America. God is not honored as he truly is if Jesus Christ, his son, is not honored as he truly is. And I say as he truly is 
because many different religions and cults honor Jesus, but not as he truly is. Buddhism honors Jesus as an enlightened teacher. Christian science admires Jesus as a wise man in line with the divine Christ. Islam reject, uh, respects Jesus as a prophet sent by God but inferior to Muhammad. Jehovah's Witnesses honor him as the created archangel. And Mormonism respects him as a spirit being, son of God, brother of Satan. Jesus is infinitely more than a moral man and teacher. Listen to the powerful logic of C.S. Lewis on this point. Quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make the choice, your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End of quote. Honoring Jesus as simply a great moral example or teacher is not honoring him at all. It's blaspheming him. Jesus is worthy of the highest honor that God is worthy of. Do you want to honor God? Then honor the Son. Give glory to the Son. Revere the Son. After all, He holds the eternal gavel. Jesus continued with these militant Jews. If you hear and believe the truth of Jesus Christ, you are no longer dead and condemned, but alive forever. Forever. Let that sink in. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. They will live. Now, let's make sure that we understand what Jesus is saying here. People are spiritually dead without Jesus and will come into judgment. If someone passes from death into life, it means they started out dead. Dead. No life. Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. People are dead in their sin. When Paul mentioned widows who live to satisfy their selfish desires over and above God, this is what he wrote. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So you can be living, but you're just a walking corpse. You're dead. Jesus also said to have eternal life, you must first hear Whoever hears my word, Jesus said, and he's probably talking about more than sound waves. In Matthew 13, 9, Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, that seems a bit odd. 
Listen, everybody, if you have ears, why don't you go ahead and listen to this? That, it just seems odd until you read verse 13, which makes it a whole lot clearer. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You can hear, but not really hear. Ephesians 1.18 talks about having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The heart needs to see. The heart needs to hear. John 8.47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So you can be alive with perfect hearing. You can hear a cricket. Seven miles away. But unless you have been changed by the grace of God, you can't really hear. You can't hear. You're spiritually deaf. Hearing is a gift leading to eternal life. Jesus also said, if you believe, you have passed from death to life. Do you believe God? To have eternal life, we must believe the Father who sent the Son, and there's more. Those who hear and believe already have eternal life, will not come into judgment, and have already passed from death to life. John introduces a concept that theologians called inaugurated eschatology, and when you hear that, you're like, I can't get that, so this might be easier for us. Already, not yet. It's already, but it's not yet. And you're like, well, what does that mean? It means that the kingdom of God is both present and future reality. In verse 24, Jesus is teaching that those who hear and believe have eternal life right now. It's not something that you have to completely wait for. You have it now. They have eternal life. He's also saying we have already been resurrected with Christ in one sense. We have already passed through judgment from death to life, yet we still await the final resurrection that is coming at the end. So it's already and it's not yet. The kingdom of God is now and the kingdom of God is then. Does that make sense? Hope so. All right. Verse 25 advances the thought. Hopefully this adds clarity. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. It's already on its way. It's in motion, it's coming, and is now here. That seems odd, isn't it? It's here, but it's coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So in one sense, a time is coming when dead people will hear Jesus Christ's voice and live. But in another sense, dead people are already hearing the voice of Jesus and living right now. We can live now. Don't live dead. Live alive. PPL has a commercial on TV right now. I was discerning through this commercial the other day and was like, say what? Um, it, throughout the commercial, and you might have seen it, it's got these scenes of like the good life. It's got family and friends and hard work and celebration and children. It's like the American dream in a in a commercial, and the opening line of the song is, love your family, love your friends, isn't this life enough? Have you seen that? Isn't this life enough? No, it isn't. 
This life is not enough. There is much more. There is the eternal Christ. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 state, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's this life. That's right now. That's the American dream, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But it goes on to say, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This life is not enough because this life cannot give us what God can give us in his son. Forgiveness. And how is God able to forgive us? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This life includes our horrendous criminal record and unpayable debt to God, but God set our debt aside. He set it completely aside Because he paid our debt, pinning his only son to a horrible cross in our place as the payment for the insurmountable debt. There is more to life than family and friends and hard work. There is the good life now in Christ. And there is the good life then, forever in Christ. We have yet to be resurrected. Now we'll get to John 6, 40, but here's a little little snapshot, a little sneak peek. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's a promise that God makes you in His Son. You trust His Son, you 100% will raise to new life at the end. You won't go to hell. You won't be condemned. You won't be judged under the wrath of God. He counts you as righteous because of his righteous son, Jesus Christ. And in the last day, you will raise to life and say, it was all worth it. I'm glad Jesus is my king. That's a promise. We dump billions of dollars every year into prolonging life through health care and fitness clubs and diet plans or whatever you're into because life is valuable to us. And yet it is so uncertain. The best health care in the world cannot defeat death in the long distance run of life. But listen to what Jesus says next, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Life comes from God alone. Notice life is in the Father. Life is in the Son When the tornado hits, where do you want to be? In the shelter. The source of life is God, and there is no life apart from the living God. So we ask the question now, how is it that Jesus can give life to dead people? He raised people when he was on earth, and he promises to raise people at the resurrection at the end. How does he have that power? How can he do that? Because life is in him God granted life to him. This is why abortion is so abhorrent. Because in Christ is life. Verse 21 said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He can give life because life is contained in him. 
John 1, 4 says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's not saying you won't die. He's saying you won't die. Long-term, eternal death and condemnation. That's not coming for you if you trust Christ. Now I ask the question to the culture and to us, is Jesus relevant? Is Jesus relevant? Is he just this old, ancient? I mean, things have progressed so far past Jesus, right? Is he still relevant? Well, if life and death are relevant to you, then yes, he is still relevant. John wrote in his first epistle that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. He continued, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's simple. Jesus is life. Have him. Have him, church. That's it. John wrote so that you would know that. Get Christ so that you get life. Have you ever asked a big store employee, you fill in the blank, doesn't really matter, Home Depot or Lowe's. Oh, I mean, you know, whatever. Have you ever been in a big store, you're looking for an employee, you find one, and you ask them for help in locating some odd item. All right, you're not finding it. You quickly look, but you can't find it. And within 30 seconds, you realize after asking, I don't think they know what they're doing. But you've already committed. The words are out of your mouth. And so now you have this like weird relationship with them. And you're like, um. And so you ask for helps. uh, You ask for their their help in hopes that you can get to the checkout faster. Okay. (laughs) But all of a sudden they quickly become a liability. And time is wasting. And so you follow them around awkwardly in this weird thing. Unable to escape without being rude. Have you ever been there? I've been there before. Looking for life outside of God is similar to that. Following someone or something in this awkward and painful search for something that you'll never find outside of God. Life is only in Christ. Friends, the hour will soon be here. It will soon be here. It could be for you today. The hour will soon be here when everyone will be judged by Jesus, some to life, some to condemnation. God gave Jesus authority. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of Man. That's why. Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, why is that title significant? In verse 25, Jesus used the title Son of God, emphasizing his deity. And now in verse 27, he uses the title Son of Man, emphasizing his humanity. Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus identifies himself with the Messiah spoken about back in Daniel, uh, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
Notice the dominion, glory, and kingdom were for the Son of Man, and Jesus is that Son of Man. D.A. Carson explains it like this. Jesus is the apocalyptic Son of Man who receives from the Ancient of Days the prerogatives of deity, a kingdom that entails total dominion. At the same time, He belongs to humanity and has walked where humans walked. It is the combination of these features that make Him uniquely qualified to judge, end of quote. Divine and human, Jesus is distinctly apt to judge. There is nothing to fear in the courtroom when the judge has paid all of your debt in full and is your best friend. Why not walk into that courtroom boldly because you know the judge? He's your best friend. He's got your back. He paid your debt in full. There's nothing to fear before the presence of an almighty God because Jesus paid it all. Jesus continued in verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The same effectual voice of the sun which spoke 10 billion galaxies into place is the same effectual voice that calls out the dead from their graves and says, live. Live. Notice verse 28 does not say, and is now here. Verse 28 refers to the final resurrection. The final resurrection is yet to come. It's coming. It's on its way. Everyone will be raised. Everyone will be judged. Some to life, some to judgment. Verse 29 does not mean that salvation is gained by what you do. That would be destroying grace and contradicting many other passages of Scripture. Doing good in verse 29 is loving God, turning from your sin and trusting in the finished work of Christ. Doing evil is rejecting Jesus and trusting in your own ability to work it all out. Life is only for those who can't do it. And trust Christ who has already done it for them. Folks, death is certain. The resurrection is certain. Judgment is certain. Your only chance to be reconciled with an almighty holy God is now before you die. The day of Christ's judgment is close. Have you heard? Have you heard with your heart? Have you believed? The truth is painfully simple. Hear the gospel. Believe the gospel. Live forever in the joy of the gospel. Come to Jesus and live. Is this not what Jesus is telling you through his son, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we come to you wanting to hear your truth needing to hear your truth. God, we're about ready to take what's called the Lord's Supper because we want to remember and recognize that Jesus Christ was slaughtered on a brutal cross so that we may have life. That's what we want to remember through the bread and through the wine. They crushed him. 
And they put them up in shame and in scorn and in humiliation, thinking they had conquered Him when in reality the cross showed that He had conquered sin and offers to us life in His name if we would just come and receive So God, I just pray that you do a work in our congregation and in our community that we would come to know Jesus Christ, that we would look to Him for salvation, look to Him alone. Just help us to not run around following these other people and other worldviews, thinking that we're going to find what we're looking for. Was that why the lyric said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for? because it wasn't found in Christ. So help us to find what we're looking for in King Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.